0: From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, May 16th, 2019. This is episode 103, Wear OS. Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I am Jason Snell and I'm joined as always by Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen Hackett hello jason snow we were not here last week we uh i couldn't make it and then you couldn't make it and uh so you know there was stuff there was google io and we uh weren't
1: here but now we are
0: now we are and we're gonna have florence ion come on later from all about android and material podcasts that are all about android like the name of the one says and uh and talk about Google I.O. a little bit, talk about the Pixel 3a and uh, some other stuff announced at Google I.O. So uh, we're going to cover it sort of with the... With a, after th- having thought about it for a week, which is, that's fine. I think that's fine. I think that'll- Totally, totally fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. But before we do that, let's talk about other stuff that happened uh, in the news in the last week or so, I guess, last week or two, so, that we think is important. And I think we got to start by uh, going to the Supreme Court- of uh, the United States, where something uh, surprising happened, which is an unusual collection of Supreme Court justices basically said that this antitrust trial about Apple's App Store practices should go ahead, which most people i think thought and certainly apple thought was not going to happen um and this is a this is a big deal because now apple has to defend its app store practices in court and uh it it may yet win but this this does feel like uh a pressure is being applied to apple in terms of uh, all the rules that it set up um 10 years ago when it set up the app store mm mm-hmm. mhm
1: It's interesting to think about the world in which the App Store was first introduced. You know, it was the first of its kind, at least at its scale. And in that vacuum, there was not a real good way to tell if their rules were reasonable or not. And I think a lot of people then... People have always been upset about the thirty percent, but there were also people who thought, "Well, that's a fine tax to be in the store." But as time has moved on, that thirty percent commission has become uh, a bigger a bigger wedge between Apple and some of its developers. And the decision of the Supreme Court is really interesting because it it really comes down to like the definition of what the App Store is and and the the way the the way that Apple developers and end users, consumers, the way their relationship works. And Apple says, Oh no, we're just a a marketplace. We're just a store with shelves. And people come in and put their things on our shelves. And I think that the plaintiffs in the Supreme court clearly see that otherwise, that the developer and the consumer have no direct relationship. Apple's in the middle. Apple's doing the payment processing. Apple's holding uh, customer information and and with that control they've been able to according to the plaintiffs keep prices uh, at a certain level in the app store. I don't know how much I buy into that particular leg of their argument, but it's uh it's a very interesting thing because it is not look there's a lots of reasons to be upset about the app store, right? Something that I don't think is in this argument very much at least in this case but has come up elsewhere is you know Apple Not only runs the store, but they put their own apps in the store. Right. And that creates conflict of interest. It's it's a very complicated, messy thing, Um, but it's clear that it's not over yet because it's now going to go back to the courts and it's going to be probably years before it gets sorted out. But I think Apple – Probably a little surprised that the not die on the vine at the Supreme Court,
0: yeah, it was a novel argument to say that they were merely distributing, but that it was the developers who were selling it. I know that if we have talked over the years to developers any developer and I suspect any uh, customer would tell you that the perception is definitely that apple is selling it that the developer that that apple's whole attitude is that they insert themselves between the customer and the developer and that the you know you pay apple and then apple will pay a percentage back to them and apple chooses the levels at which you can sell it and then they've got all these rules i'm with you in that i'm not entirely sure other than to say that well theoretically if apple wasn't taking 30 percent, then the apps would cost less but they wouldn't cost them less, because presumably Apple would still take, uh, you know, some cut for just credit Mm -hmm. card processing or things like that, that just have to be done and overhead. Um, And is, is it really true that they would cut the prices or would they just, would these developers who are scraping oftentimes to make a living, keep the prices at what they are? They just want to keep more of that money for themselves. I'm not sure. I believe that there's an anti- Consumer argument here, but you know what? Sometimes that's not the issue, as Apple found out in its ebook case, where it was trying to basically. Prevent a single company from dominating the e book space, Amazon, and in doing so got fined massively <laughs> because it was colluding with publishers. And, you know, so there, it, the law is complicated. Um, this is not saying that Apple did anything wrong, it's just saying that Apple's argument that the law doesn't apply to it in this particular case got knocked down by an unusual. It's the liberal members of the Supreme Court plus Brett Kavanaugh who struck it down um, or who sent it back to the courts to be, to be, uh, reconsidered and said that they are, um, uh, uh, you know, a seller and not a distributor. So, um, it's more time in court. It's more money for Apple's lawyers, but also, um, when you throw in presidential candidates talking about, uh, intervening in the app store and the European commission talking about it, it does make me wonder if at some point, um, for some reason, Apple is finally going to be forced to do what they haven't had to do the last decade of incredible App Store success, which is reconsider some of the fundamental principles of the App Store. Like, it was going so good. Why would we change a thing? But now um, they may
1: actually have to do it one way or another, whether to get people off their backs or whether because they're forced to by a court. It's also interesting because you have a really technical argument at the heart of it. iOS is architected to only install apps from the App Store. Uh, to consumers, yes, they're like MDMs and test flight and stuff. But most people's iPhones, you just go to the App Store and install an app. And there is a, a possible outcome here where that changes that they are required to allow users potentially to sideload apps yeah. and do other things. So it's a very interesting question from that angle too. This this is not just a, a policy or a financial problem; it's a technical. How does the phone work type problem as well if it doesn't go apple's way? yeah, this is
0: uh, one of those cases where Apple has this uh set of rules that are at least in part are all about security and you know having a locked down app store has the advantage of having every app that goes in it be scanned and approved and taken apart and and or you know looked at by somebody at apple and it does have potentially this other effect but you know do you order apple to make their platform less secure is that also not bad for you know consumers right that that's another thing to to weigh in and and it reminded me of another story that i read this week that we'll put a link to in the in the show notes that that is a story that makes me think and yet also is just highlights the this conundrum which is iPhones, Vice wrote an article about how it's almost impossible to tell if an iPhone has been hacked. And the argument here is fascinating. It is, the the idea is that iPhones and iOS has bugs. Those bugs can lead to security flaws. But the tools that security researchers use to figure out what, whether a phone has been hacked, uh, what those flaws are, are very limited because the platform is so locked down so it's one of these cases where the platform's fundamental security potentially makes it harder to tell if a bug has led to the phone being made insecure and it's fascinating because you read the story and you think okay security researcher it's very clear that what they're saying is we need better access. We need Apple to give us better access than this. This is Apple's fault for not letting us do our research on these phones. But I'm sitting there thinking, well, of course you would say that. You want better tools. But by giving you better access, you're also giving the bad people better access and unlocking some of the platform, which makes it less secure. So you end up in this weird catch-22 where you've got uh a, a lockdown platform that still might have insecurities in it but nobody can tell and the people who can tell the people who figure it out they're so valuable that they keep them to themselves they sell them to uh governments or to bad people of various kinds it's a uh, don't know if you if you, you read the article but I, I thought it was fascinating because like i get the argument of the security researchers and yet there's part of me who says yeah but you know, what do you want them to do about it? You want them to, to open up the platform? That just makes it less secure. Your your job is to uh, analyze security, and yet you're asking for tools that would make it less secure in order to do your job. It's like, I'm not sure what way out there is here, but it is a case of Apple's policies
1: um, having an unexpected consequence. Yeah, it's a super complicated story. I have read it, and I, I honestly don't know what I think about it past what you said, because it's there's a lot of angles there to consider, and there's always the sort of unasked question of what happens if if a company like Apple or somebody else makes a decision for people with good intentions, but those tools get out to people with bad intentions. Right? Exactly. And that's a slip. That's a slippery, dangerous game.
0: Right. I mean, yeah. It's it's fascinating to see it because, it, but you do end up in this point where. Is it more? Would the iPhone as a platform be more secure if researchers had more of an ability to analyze what's going on inside it, knowing that that would also be something that could be exploited by others who are not trying to investigate? Versus what the status quo, which is that there are bugs that lead to hackability of the of the system to a certain degree, and we can't really tell, um, which is a which is a more or less secure scenario. And I think. That's a fascinating question. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, We had a bunch of streaming news this week that's worth mentioning. Um... Big one was that Comcast, which owned 33% of Hulu, once the joint venture of many entertainment giants. It was back in the day where TV networks roamed the earth and wanted their uh, stuff on the internet as a sort of trial. They set up this joint venture called Hulu. But over time, uh, what's been clear now is that all of the big entertainment companies are going to set up their own direct to consumer streaming services. Disney is going there. Warner Media is going there. NBC Universal, which is uh, owned by Comcast, is going there. And you're left with Hulu, which is owned two thirds by Disney and one third by Comcast, which is this really strange outlier. It's been very clear that Disney wants to use Hulu as part of its streaming strategy for more adult oriented content that's not going to go on the Disney Plus service. And this week, it was finally agreed to. They made a deal. They're, Disney's going to pay Comcast to buy them out in a while. There are a lot of terms in terms of like what content from Comcast, from NBC Universal will stay on Hulu, what content will go, when it will go, all of that, but they have kind of resolved to go their separate ways, um, which is an interesting industry insider kind of thing, but it also points the way to the larger story, which is the number of streaming services that are going to be trying to compete for your money is not going to begin getting smaller anytime soon. There are going to be more of them and more of them. And if you're somebody who likes watching the two most popular shows on Netflix, which are The Office and friends get ready the office is owned by NBC universal and will undoubtedly be going to their new streaming service at some point and leaving netflix and friends will be leaving netflix at some point in the next year or two and going to the warner media streaming service so netflix has been spending the last 5 years buying all of this original content in order to wait for that day that was inevitable, where all of the old TV shows that they made their name by get pulled off of their service. And it's gonna, it's getting close now. We're getting much closer to that, that, that
1: day. Let me ask you this, because you, you follow this closer than I do. Does Hulu survive the next five years? Does it survive this transition? or I, does it get folded into something else? I think Hulu does survive, and I think I think it's because Disney is
0: planning a... Because it's part of Disney, it will survive. I think that's the answer, is Disney is going to turn it from what it is now, which is this combination of a streaming service with original content like Runaways and The uh, Handmaid's Tale, and there's a bunch of originals that they've got on there. We watched uh, the first, right? That got canceled, the Sean Penn show. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also a place where right now you get these, like, next-day versions of network TV shows and things, that version of Hulu is going to kind of, like, transform into something that's more like a Netflix uh, or like uh, in any other—or or like an Amazon Prime video, where what it's going to have is— content so disney owns all the old fox cable uh entertainment channels so uh fx fxx uh they also own abc and they own some other cable channels too freeform and basically disney plus seems to be oriented for more kind of like wholesome family fare um although I guess the Simpsons is going to be on there too. I don't know, or is that going to be on Hulu? Anyway, the the point is, I think Disney's going to differentiate those two services. They're going to have Disney Plus for this kind of content, and it's going to be more family friendly, and it's going to have the Marvel and the and and uh, and other franchises, Star Wars, and things like that. And then Hulu will be like all the stuff from FX um which is which is more adult oriented um i think some marvel stuff because hulu is doing marvel originals as well but they'll probably be uh uh, aged up a little bit they'll be more like what we saw on netflix where it's maybe maybe r-rated kind of content goes on hulu versus the stuff that goes on disney plus is more pg-13 at most um So in the long run, I think it's just part of a multiple... They'll get bundled together, but it's like multiple streaming services. They also have ESPN as part of the mix for Disney. I think they're going to... I think they're they're going to sell those individually and as a bundle, and uh, and I I think that's good because they bought all of this content that doesn't work with the Disney brand, and they need someplace else to put it. And I think Hulu is going to become that. I would imagine it'll become the outlet for all of ABC's shows. Like if you're uh, like CBS All Access, if you subscribe to that, you don't have to have cable, and you'll get all of CBS's shows. You just get them because cbs owns them i i would imagine that that will happen um even more so than it does today with abc and hulu where all the abc catalog content and live tv from abc and all the current shows that are on the abc network will also just park at hulu um just as the nbc shows will park at the nbc universal streaming service where you know whatever it ends up being when it launches later this year so you're going to have to decide. This is the bigger point, is that, Stephen, you will have to decide what, how many of these things you really want, because there are going to be lots of them, and they're each going to have their own uh exclusive content there's i think not going to be as much stuff that is sort of like available everywhere and so right. everybody you but not just you personally they're not singling you out everybody's going to have to start picking and choosing a bit more about what kind of uh you know do you want the service that has this show or do you want the service that has this show or do you buy both of them but then there's the third service that you now don't you
1: know can't have and it's got a different show on it mm-hmm Disney is turning into just everything, right? I think I I don't know if I share this on the show, but my eight-year-old daughter was. We I made a comment about something. Oh, that's Disney, and then I walked her through everything that Disney owns. She's like, "How is that okay?" Like, that's a good question. Great question. Yeah, she's going to grow up to become a regulator.
0: Yeah, it's uh, Disney is enormous, right? They're they're enormous, but they're they're trying to convert to be this direct to consumer brand. Bob Iger talks about it all the time, the CEO of Disney, and that's the. That's their idea, is instead of having to go through... Other people, in order to reach their customers, now you can just basically gives Disney a credit card in exchange for their content, and I think they're positioned really well to be successful in the in this 21st century media environment. I think the real question is, what about everything else? Like, because because it seems unlikely. Although you know the cable bundle is very expensive right now, but it still feels unlikely to me that people are going to subscribe to six different streaming services, seven different streaming services, and pay a bill that's the size of the cable bill today but maybe they will i don't know then they'll bundle it all together and it'll be cable again because in the Mm -hmm. end as i've been saying for years now in the end they want your money they're doing this all because they're going to get their money tv shows aren't free they cost super very expensive so all right well let's take a break and then we've got a little bit more Plus, Flow is coming to talk about Google I.O. But first, let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by Pingdom. Pingdom is brilliant. Why are they brilliant? Because they help keep your sites and the sites you love online. Pingdom monitors your website so you don't have to. And they give you real-time feedback so you know what's going on at all times. Now, the internet is great, but stuff breaks all the time because the internet is made of computers, and computers are bad, and they will betray you if you look at them even funny, like even a little bit, and it's not funny when the site goes down. Pingdom detects about 13 million outages every month, 400,000 betrayals by a computer every single day. Whether you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company, doesn't matter. You need to be alerted when your website has any issues. Pingdom lets you customize how you're alerted depending on how severe the outage is. They'll track and analyze your website's load time to let you know how the user experience is going because your site may be up but have load problems, which are also bad. So it's not just, is it up or not? It's more detailed than that. And it doesn't matter the size of your site, you need Pingdom. There's easy, easy ways to get started. Couldn't be easier. Do you know your site's URL? I hope you do. You put that into Pingdom. That's it. That's it. They take care of the rest. Put your URL into Pingdom. They take care of the rest. Here's another URL for you. Pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Go there right now and you'll get a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code DOWNLOAD at checkout, the name of this podcast, and you'll get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for warning us when our computers betray us and for supporting download and all of FM. Now it's time for the story you might have missed, something that may have flown under your radar but is worth mentioning. Uh, If you were on Twitter, you didn't miss this story because there were a lot of outraged people. But I'm fascinated by sort of what this says about where we are in the world. Um, Users of older versions of Adobe Creative Cloud apps, so they're subscribers to Adobe's apps, but they haven't updated to newer versions, even though they're entitled to, they were warned in the last week that they need to stop using those older versions because they could potentially face infringement ca- claims from third party companies due to ongoing litigation this is a this is a case where there adobe is in a dispute with other companies it's rumored to be dolby labs actually that about uh, patents i think on some of the software uh, that adobe has modified in the meantime but the older versions still infringe and it's one of these cases where you're paying adobe you don't want to upgrade for various reasons for compatibility reasons perhaps and adobe is saying well If you don't upgrade, maybe you'll get sued, or maybe we need to warn you of this so we don't get sued. And, you know, this is a complicated legal thing, and it's probably been overreacted to by people. But at the same time, it is amazing to me that we live in an era where you've got subscription software, the maker of the subscription software tells you you have to update, or you're potentially going to be um, legally liable, which is fascinating. On the other hand, at least Adobe didn't automatically delete everybody's old versions, which is the other thing I suppose it could have done. But um, Stephen, what is this? This is this is not what <laughs> I signed. This is no good.
1: This really feels like a, a lawyer a lawyer letter that made it out to customers <laughs> uh, just because it seems so uh, scary and right. over the top. Yeah. And clearly Adobe has some sort of situation going on. And them just pushing it to their customers without a lot of context is not awesome.
0: No, it's not. Um, And they also made a change. This is part of this is they also made a change that said, uh, from now on, you can only download the two most recent major versions. So I think it's funny because I never really thought about the fact that depending on who you're working with, um and what your hardware is and things like that you might not stay up to date with the latest versions Um, or maybe you just don't want to like keep having your self or your people have to go through adapting to new versions as a single user of Adobe Photoshop CC, I just get the new versions, and I'm like, oh, okay, there's a new version of Photoshop, and it's kind of nice, because I just get them as part of my subscription, but this is the downside of of that, is that if you want to stay behind, even if you're paying, if you want to stay behind for some reason, they're going to drag you into the present, but I really, I mean... I could read this as being that this was potentially an enormous disaster uh, that was different because it's subscription software. But I also could read this that like if this was the old days and two versions ago of of Adobe software had this was found to be infringing on a patent, Adobe would just have to pay. And now, instead of just having to pay, they have their lawyers send a message to all of their subscribers saying, quick, get off that version so we don't have to pay, or you might pay, which is, right, I, I just, that's that's my immediate thought, is that is that in the old days, those products would have shipped, and, you know, that would be, it would be a done deal. But now it's in, they're in this kind of interim state where people have them, but they also could upgrade and i don't know it's just like this is i enjoy my software subscriptions honestly to photoshop and to microsoft 365 uh, because they're completely fuss free i just pay and i get the apps and i never have to worry about it but this is the downside of it is stuff like this uh where uh you you rely on this stuff and you want to just keep doing your job and then you get an ugly reminder here that it's not really your software after all surprise All right. We own it. And now we are joined by Florence Ion from the Material Podcast and all about Android. Flo, welcome back to Download.
2: Hello. I'm happy to be back.
0: Uh, We have so we went we were hibernating last week for various reasons, but I didn't want to let Google IO go without talking about some of the stuff that happened at Google's big presentation, their big show where they spend lots of time rolling out lots of stuff. And we thought of you because you pay attention to this stuff very closely. And uh, also, Stephen has uh you know he got a he got a pixel 3a uh and so i want to start there the the uh low priced variant of the uh last year's big google pixel the the pixel 3 the, the pixel 3a here it is um and what can what can you uh what can you tell me about it and and steven this is I'm, I'm basically stepping back because i feel like steven and flo you're the ones who need to talk about this phone because i don't know i don't know nothing so tell me
2: Steven, I want to hear your opinion as as a person from the other side. <laughs>
1: Ooh. Are you Sorry. a ghost? Is he a ghost? Yes. I've died some time ago. Oh, no. Sorry to. <laughs> well, ghost casting like is going to be big. Ghost casting. Ghost casting. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for like you said, I carry an iPhone, but I do keep uh, a, an Android phone. My. Old one was actually Jason's old one, the 5X. Uh-huh. Nexus 5X. So it was time. That was the last
2: great, the last great one of the last great Nexuses. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely,
1: lovely, plasticky, but beautiful. I love that phone. <laughs> that was a really good phone. The Pixel 3A is actually sort of reminiscent of that because yeah. it is plastic.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say.
1: It weighs basically nothing coming from an iPhone 10S, which is way heavier. And uh, I've gotta say, I think they they did a good job. You know, all of these, and I'm putting in air quotes like budget or like mid st- like mid-tier phones, because like this phone is still like four hundred dollars, right? It's starting. It's not. Um, this is not a two hundred dollar phone, and the flagships are a thousand or more. So, the field has changed. So, when you look at these phones, is always the question always is where are the compromises? And so, we mentioned one the plastic body, but they did put a really nice display on it. The screen uh, is. Way nicer than what I've had on previous Android phones. Not, not probably not as quite as good as what Samsung is doing, what Apple's doing, but really good. The camera is effectively what's in the Pixel Three. They they don't have the image processing unit that they have on the Pixel the Three. Pixel but
2: Core Visual Pixel the Pixel co- Visual uh, Core. <laughs> Even uh, I say it wrong every time.
1: <laughs> it's a ter- It's a terrible name. Uh, it doesn't have that, but. And I don't have a Pixel 3 to compare it against, but I've been really happy with the camera performance and the shots I'm getting out of it. I mean, the Pixel is legendary for its camera, and I think that this cheaper 3A steps into that reputation and and holds its own.
2: It can do it, but it's not apples to apples. It's uh, apples to oranges, if that makes sense. So they're both in the fruit class. But uh, there's that slight differentiation of taste, um, just to push that metaphor forward. So I noticed that when I take photos, so just to, I do have the Pixel 3, that is my daily driver. I noticed that when I take photos between the two, that some of the features, like, they can do the feature, like the, like the super zoom. It's there, it does it, but it's not at all as clear or it's just not exactly the same result that you would get with the Pixel 3. Like you can tell that there's just a slight differentiation.
1: Mm-hmm. This is the first phone I've had with the Night Sight feature. And I'm curious in, in light of what you just said, how does Night Sight compare on the A to the regular 3 in it's, your experience? It's
2: still pretty good. It's just, I haven't like tested it in the dead of night yet, um, but I've been testing it around the house, like just very, in very dark Areas And I like to shoot my cat because she moves around a lot and that's like a good way to kind of test how this feature will capture the scene. And thus far, I've been really impressed with its abilities. Um, It's this is unlike any. So in the Android side of things, a phone that hovers around at this price range does not shoot photos the kind of photos that you want to like blow up and get right. printed out from Snapfish. <laughs> like,
1: right. That's usually where they cut right to, uh to hit that price point. So, oh, we'll just, you know, put a cheaper camera in it. And that's fine yeah. if price is your primary filter, but if it's not, then you, you sort of end up being punished for getting something less expensive.
2: Exactly. And most of the time, the photos are, are good enough for social media, but they're not gonna, you know, they're not the kind of things that you want to hold on to or maybe you do. I, I I mean, a picture is worth a thousand words, no matter how many megapixels it is. But <laughs> in this particular case, I like the idea that you can get a mid-range phone and get this kind of camera performance out of it. That's where Google's really banking. That's where it's banking on selling um, it. It saw like the pixels were doing so well in the camera department. They were able to really hit the marketing hard on that. And so they're going to go with the same thing for the three A's. The problem, however, <laughs> comes the fact that the processor in these things is is a mid-range processor. It's not a right. high end. And you are, I've already, I started to see the disparities at startup, like as I was doing the onboarding process.
1: Yeah. The um, yeah. Go no. Go ahead. Yeah, it definitely feels like any time you're really asking it to do something sustained, it's gonna you're gonna feel it drag a little bit. But I I think they've done. I think they've done a good enough job. What I really worry about is how it's going to fare over the long term. If it's going to be an acceptable phone performance-wise in 24 months.
2: So I'm not. So I okay, so I've been using the last couple of years. So what I'm about to say comes completely. It's completely anecdotal. I do not have anything 100%. I don't have facts. I I do have facts. I have my anecdotal facts, which are that the last couple of pixels I've used after about a year of not um, wiping them or doing any sort of reset, I've noticed like quite a bit of slowdown at Mm -hmm. an operating system level. And if you do a little Googling, you you will start to see some forums and people sort of chattering about this sort of thing. Um, And so that's the one thing that worries me about this phone long-term, because I already see a lot of folks... So this thing has been out for about a week now. Um, it's on sale. You can buy it. There's a 5.6 inch one, which is a Pixel 3A, and there's a six inch one, which is a 3A XL. Um, both both have lovely displays. Both have lovely chassis. As we had said, even though they're plasticky, and pretty good specs on the inside, including big batteries, but. There is there is that worry that you are going to get what you're paying for over time. <laughs> that things are going, that maybe what hasn't been completely refined for the high end will start to show its age in the mid-range. So that's how I'm approaching it, just as... An Android user,
0: I feel like this is the big question. With this, is that there aren't a lot of popular mid range phones in certainly in the United States market. You either kind of have the premium phones, and that's your a- Apple and Samsung territory, and where the uh the Pixel 3 ha- has lived, and then you've got your your budget phones. And it, it, I think the question is if you're somebody who's buying a smartphone, do you do you want a mid-range phone or do you want to just get the cheapest one you can get or do you want to get that, that especially as, Buying cycles theoretically keep lengthening, you want to get that premium phone that's gonna last you. And and that is seems a, a lot of the analysis I've read has said this is the real question. Is Google has never had a breakout hit phone anyway. That like these phones are good, but they've never really sold spectacularly well. They're a very small percentage of the overall smartphone market in the US. So, uh, you know, that's my overarching question is it you know, Is the market looking for a $400 phone? Is this going to be perceived as being a premium phone at a mid-range price point? Or is it really, you know, another mid-range phone that has not a category that has not found a lot of success?
2: I'm thinking about that because I noticed that a lot of folks are mentioning, Oh, well, if you were thinking about upgrading, you could just get the Pixel 3a and it's, it's half the price of the three. And that's not at all. Again, it's apples to oranges. Um, in as far as whether there's a call for this in the market, I think, I think there is just because if I think people are tired of paying a lot of money for phones. And I think Google is trying to appeal to that particular subset of users and of which there are a lot, um, especially in North America. And in North America, we also like we have low end and mid-range phones, but they're all very paltry as far as as far as I'm concerned. Um in what they can do compared to what you would pay for three to five hundred dollars more, um, there are brands like OnePlus which have managed to build a really big niche following, but they're still kind of like you find out about OnePlus through someone else. They have carrier partnerships now, but you know, I'm I'm very curious too how this is going to unfold and ultimately. I think Google's just banking on the people who want a performance camera but do not want to pay that price.
0: Yeah, I just uh, it's interesting because I think it's a really interesting phone, but at the same time the moment in the, in the heat of the moment when this product gets introduced everybody's like, "Whoa, watch out Samsung and Apple. Now there's a phone that's only $400 and that's going to really hurt Samsung and Apple." And I look at this and go, "Is it? Is it really going to hurt Samsung yeah, and Apple?" That-
2: that is one of the ads, right? One of the Google ads is like Phone X, which we all know what Phone X is, uh, is this much money. And the Pixel 3a is this much money, which is fine. You can say that you are getting, I would say, pretty darn good camera performance for the 400 bucks. And I'm just saying this with a week with the phone, um, comparing it to the high-end phone. But you do have to think about I think the only real benefit in the long term for folks who are thinking about the 3A and the 3A XL is that you're going to get the software and security updates directly from Google. Because that's still like the really big problem is that the really big problem is that um, manufacturers like Samsung and LG um, and even OnePlus, which manages its own uh, update cycle, they're going to come to the updates as soon as they can get to it, um, as soon as they can finish modifying uh, everything. And there were some announcements made at Google I.O. that are supposed to kind of help with that update cycle and streamline it even more than it's been streamlined in the last couple of years. Uh, But again, you're not going to have access to those things unless you have the latest version of Android and to ensure that you want to get your phone from Google. Right
0: for me the appeal of these uh, the, the phones from Google the and Nexus and now and, uh, the Pixel that's the, been the number one thing is mm-hmm. it's stock Android it gets Android updates directly from Google like that is I, I find that that's very appealing but you know as somebody who has an iPhone I'm like yes get the platform vendors phone there are so many advantages to it but it is a, a, an advantage for those who care about it because otherwise you're waiting behind whatever Samsung or OnePlus or anybody else wants gonna to do. I was going to
2: say it's not it's not a very sexy a slogan like we get a- updates like yeah. cool and uh, we,
0: we use st- standard stock vanilla android ha ha take that you know but yes, th- exactly it doesn't sound like it's uh, an advantage but if you use some of the extras that get stuck on phones by phone makers it, it is it is
2: although some people might say well, i don't want updates all the time that's super annoying
0: <laughs> oh okay that's true interesting yeah
2: just i mean speaking to the users around me who have said like eh, i don't want to update it like i'm too busy for that right now yeah Not the best practice. I do try to steer them otherwise. Um, Do you want to talk a bit about some of the Google I.O. announcements related to software?
0: Yeah, we should. We should do that. Let's um, (laughs) but before we do that, let's take a break. And uh, let me tell you very quickly about our second sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by Linode. With Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud. And you get a server running in just seconds. With your choice of Linux distro resources and node location, I just did this. Stephen Hackett and I just did this. We set up a new Linode server for Real AFM uh, while we were on a call together. We set the whole thing up It did not take very long. You pick your distro, you pick where you want it. And then we did some, uh, use their excellent documentation actually to make sure it was up to date, to install the software we wanted and to get the thing up and running. It was amazing. We had a whole internet server that we built on a phone call in minutes, basically. There are hundreds and thousands of thousands of satisfied Linode customers all taken care of by a great 24 seven support team. So if you have problems, you can email them, you can call them, you can chat on IRC. Or if you want, you can use those super helpful guides and support documentation like Stephen and I did, because we are not experts at setting up Unix servers in the cloud. But we were able to uh, use the documentation provided by Linode to get what we wanted done. It was pretty great. Their new management panel is now in beta, go to cloud.linode.com to check that out. It's a whole single-page application built using React.js, backed by their public API, and it's even open source. Plus, there's two-factor authentication. I just turned that on not too long ago to keep you and all your data safe and secure. There are pricing options to suit everyone. It is mind-boggling. You can get a server in the Linode cloud, one gig of RAM, $5 a month. $5 a month for a very capable cloud server, and they also have high memory plans starting with 16 gigs of RAM. And here's a great offer. As a listener to download, you can go to linode.com slash downloadfm and use the promo code downloadfm2019, and you'll get $20 toward any Linode plan. Do the math. That's four free months of that one gig of RAM server pretty amazing. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee, so you really have nothing to lose. Get started today with Linode. That's Linode.com slash DownloadFM. That's linod dot com. And promo code DownloadFM2019 to learn more, sign up, and make the most of that $20 credit. Thank you, Linode, for keeping all of my servers up and running and for supporting Download and all of FM. All right, Flo, you mentioned software um, at I.O. The th- one of the things that really struck me is they Google knows that their competitor, Apple, is spending a lot of time. They've got an ad campaign about it, talking about privacy and security. And uh, there was definitely a heightened message at I.O. about all of the different ways that Google is concerned about privacy.
2: Yes, Uh, concerned about privacy and also trying to make it as transparent as possible for the user's to have the the idea that they have complete control over their privacy and in which effect they they do um, Android Q is going to, again, the big caveat is you're going to have to have this version of Android to get access to these things. And um with the current update cycle, sometimes um that's years after the fact, which is a real bummer. But if you're on the Pixel train, you can look forward to Android Q. And Android Q will have these privacy, basically... You go into the settings and it's right there. There's a privacy category, which I know doesn't sound like a big deal, but trust me, this is a big deal because before you had to really dig into the settings to get to toggling any sort of Google Assistant thing on and off, um, in Android Q, you're going to be able to just pop in there, tap on privacy, and then you can dig in <laughs> you can dig in even more menus there. So that's why I kind of said the illusion of transparency because, yeah, it's all there, but I'm just imagining someone like my mom trying to deal with this and feeling completely overwhelmed and not really understanding. I can understand it pretty darn well because I have been in this field and I I genuinely am a fan of these things, but again, there's a lot of refinement that needs to happen. At the same time, it's nice that Google's thinking about things. So at the keynote, they did talk a lot about privacy. They they addressed some of the things that we've been talking about in the media, um, in tech circles. They addressed uh, bias in machine learning. They kind of addressed all these little things in the keynote to just say, like, we are paying attention to what it is that you're saying, which is appreciated. Um, Along with some of the just privacy. I mean, yes, (laughs) there's a lot. I just got overwhelmed thinking about like all of the new features that are coming because and that's how I'm kind of feeling that it's going to affect users.
0: So the, the, the overwhelmingness, that's definitely a a piece of criticism that I heard is that, is that there were, there were a couple, you know, the people on Twitter who follow this, who are not, you know, they're, they're definitely not uh, trying to take Google down a notch as part of their job that they're, they're, they're trying to look at this objectively and they're like, you know, it's great, but at the same time, it's sort of like we care about your privacy, and that's why we've scattered 60 different features across all of you know settings in various apps and places where it's like it's great, but a lot of this is off by default and hard to find and scattered everywhere. And it's one of those things where I'm not sure what Google could do better right now because they they, you know, they, they are dealing with an existing system that has been built around their existing business model, and now they're trying to kind of find a way to navigate where they can give people that control. But it's certainly uh, a complicated scenario, at least right now. It's, it seems really complicated.
2: It is and it isn't. I mean, you will be able to go in and select what permissions are allowed for each app. You've already kind of been able to do that, but now it's just going to be more robust and more obvious. So it'll literally be a toggle, which is great. But again, we talk about all these features and I'm going to probably have to write a giant how to (laughs) to teach people how to use these things, because it's not I don't think it's immediately obvious to people that these are things that they should be paying attention to. And I think it's great that they're available. But again, how do you make that sexy for people? How do you make it? easy for people to understand. We were excited about it being at Google IO, watching it at the keynote and thinking like, wow, this is going to be really great for us existing users who of already know our way around. But I still keep thinking about how this is going to integrate with other versions of Android on other manufacturers phones. So like the Galaxy phones, what are those going to be like? They are, you know, Samsung has its own Knox thing that it puts forth to like protect you right you know it's it's a whole nother advertising shebang there so it all sounds google io is google it's what google's trying to do but then when you kind of penetrate outside of that bubble and remember that there's all these other variables that come into play and that there are just people walking into the carrier store trying to buy a phone and i don't know that the first thing that's going to be said to them is that you're gonna be able to go in and decide whether an app has access to your camera. Hmm. <laughs> like that's not really gonna be the, <laughs> the selling point.
0: Well, and is I mean I think that I think the broader question is 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 this something that Google? is truly concerned about and thinks their users are concerned about or is it more that Google wants to be able to when confronted say well yeah but you can you can set all these yeah. settings and 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 you know so what where does their motivation i guess start and where does it end is this more just sort of a defense mechanism to say look you can you can change these settings or are they motivated to push uh, defaults toward more privacy and that that is a challenge i know that they're working as the assistant now doing um a bunch of processing on device like
2: on on device processing yep. yeah they shrunk it down from 2 gigs to a mere kilobytes which is just uh an amazing technological feat i was just impressed by that um yeah they're moving a lot of the stuff onto the device a lot of the google lens features which are the features integrated into the camera on the pixel um that they use machine learning to kind of see what it is that you're looking at and help you expand from there whether it's to translate uh, text or to maybe give you some more additional information on something um i really there's also a lot of Helpful features coming into the fold. I don't want to jump there just yet, but I'm just mentioning it because um, the live caption features, for example, right. are one of the things that they had, um, as far as I know, as far as I remember, is one of the things that they had onboarded onto the phone to try and shrink down all of this possibility. And that, in of itself, is supposed to be kind of privacy minded because it means that you're not consistently connected to a cloud and processing this information that way it's just being done based on what the machine already knows but again not so sexy when you tell somebody about what's going on there
0: so let's Shift gears and talk a little bit about another big thing that they announced, which is after after this whole thing where Google bought Nest and then they kept Nest separate and then they said they were going to manage Nest and the rest of their home stuff together. Um, we got at I O this time the official announcement that Nest is now Google's home brand. So, uh, in fact, the what is it? The Google Home Hub is now the Google Nest Hub, yes. and, and there's a new one of that, and uh, Nest's uh, existing stuff they're dropping their whole like works with Nest API they're dumping all of that and they're just going to go with works with Google Assistant and um, And this is the sort of final phase of Nest being completely integrated into Google, you know, and for people who have Nest gear, they're like, "Mm, I'm a little uncomfortable. At the same time, it is interesting that Google has embraced Nest as the concept, as the brand for its home products, when it could have just kind of wiped it completely clean and said, no, it's just Google, just call it Google. And they're like, no, Nest, we like Nest, we're going to use that. So, uh, you know, what's your what's your feeling about what uh, what Google has done with Nest?
2: I So I actually don't I, – I think we will notice the changes because of who we are, but I don't know that folks with the thermostat or the smoke alarms in their house are going to immediately notice these changes um, because I, I don't know how many people know about works with Nest – besides the folks who were yeah. looking to do that home automation.
0: I think it's basically if there's something that stops working is going to be how they notice so that and that's mm-hmm. on that's on Google and Nest. Like I it was unclear from their announcement like I actually sent a tweet to the Nest support basically saying, "So does this mean that my Amazon Echo is going to stop working with my thermostat?" And their response was Basically, it was equivocal, but it was basically, well, we're going to work with Amazon to try to get them before we shut down Works with Nest to get it set up so that it will work with our new thing. And that, for me, that's the question is like, is there a strategy here to bring existing stuff over to their new APIs that they've got, or is this more of a clampdown of like, nope, now it's going to be in our ecosystem and that's it? And you know, their response to me was sort of like, well, we're going to try, and it remains to be seen. Because that, to me, that's the answer, right? Ultimately, is if I get a software update one day that basically says, hey, uh, your thermostat doesn't work with your assistant anymore because it's the wrong kind of assistant, that's not that's not so great. And if I never notice, then I don't care.
2: So I'm not entirely sure about the migration, like how they're going to do that. Um, I am still... (laughs) still have queries out about that. Um, But I do know that what is... That what these features are supposed to do is, again, going back to that privacy-mindedness, like that idea of privacy, um, kind of the overarching theme of Google I.O. Like, this is a part of that move because what this is going to break, quote-unquote, is it's going to it's going to cease some of the live camera feeds some of the actions for the certain part of nest devices that are that you can program through services like ifttt so what ifttt has um access to it has access to the works with nest right apis i guess which and those are a lot more, I'm putting, trying to put this into basic terms for folks, but they're a lot more, quote, open, unquote, like just the, the data they put forth versus the Google Assistant and what that has access to right. related to the Nest. And so that's what they're trying to kind of clamp down, like, okay, we need to make this privacy-minded. Let's kind of remove these things and go back to the drawing board and make it so that people get convenience from the Google Assistant and that they want to continue to use the Google Assistant because that's ultimately the goal of everything is – this is yeah. the whole ecosystem now. It is the Assistant.
0: It's just, uh, it's, it's not great when you buy a piece of hardware and then, uh, you know, a, a year later, the owner of the hardware yeah. basically says, yeah, that, those things that you used to do with it, you can't, we're not going to let you do that anymore because of our strategic uh, needs or or because of our privacy needs. Like, I, that, this is what I experienced with Logitech, right? Where I had the Logitech mm, yeah. um, uh, remote control harmony hub mm-hmm. thing and they were like, oh, we, we shut off all of the local network access because it was a potential security flaw and everybody who had wired it to home automation said, you just broke everything that I use that for. Mm-hmm. And they were apologetic, and they rolled out a, a, a fix. But I, I, I get some of those vibes. And it's, a ch- it's hard, right? Because uh, they want to move forward, but at the same time, when you buy a piece of hardware like a thermostat that can last for a decade, it is awfully hard to have uh, stuff get deprecated. And in this case, they are literally just taking their entire thing that they spent the last, what, four or five years pushing this works with Nest API and throwing it in the bin and replacing it with something that uh, it's not entirely clear what, it, what it's going to do. It may be fine. It may all work out to be fine. And going forward, this is clearly the right direction for Google. But as somebody who has had a Nest thermostat on his wall for, uh, for many years now, it uh, makes me a little uncomfortable because I'm concerned that where we end up is going to break stuff that I have in my house right now.
2: Based on what I know, just this is just also anecdotal and complete conjecture, but I think you're going to be fine on the thermostat part because the assistant has access to that. So I can easily command the assistant to take care of the thermostat for me right now as is, just with the Nest account, the Nest login that I have. Um I think that's going to be fine. I think the thing that is going to possibly break or quote, you know, quote unquote break or have problems is going to be more like the security cameras right. and the security system. Also, on that note, and just to like move on yeah. to the next hub, Nest Hub Max. So we talked about how those devices are now getting the Nest nomenclature. Well, guess what? They don't work exactly like Nest products. The only thing that's really unifying all these things as a name. And so, for instance, the Nest Hub Max doesn't have a Nest camera in it. Hmm. That is just a camera. So I got some clarification on that because I was wondering, I was, you know, oh, wow, this is a $230 uh, device. Okay. Uh, it has pretty great speakers, kind of like the the Hub, The <laughs> I forgot their names, the Google Home Max, the big stereo speaker. Mm -hmm. Okay, has a bigger the 10-inch screen so that, okay, we kind of have a nice little kitchen TV. Okay, it has a camera on it. And because it had the name Nest in it, I asked him, I was like, well, is this going to be related to Nest Aware? Um, And they said you were not going to have to pay to have the camera feed from this and that it's actually going to use different facial recognition data than the one that you use with products like the Nest Hello doorbell cam which has the Cam IQ abilities in it, which are the facial recognition um, technology. So these are just little examples of this kind of like weird fragmentation that isn't making sense to me because everything is sharing the Nest name, but it's not completely 100% unified. So that's why, yeah, this is very confusing, like what is going to happen well. with the Nest brand. Mm-hmm. I think it's being kept because Nest is the name that you see when you walk into Lowe's and Home Depot and Target. Those are the names that you immediately recognize with technology for your home. But I think they also want to propagate the, the Google Assistant. And in order to do that, uh, got to tack on Google to the name too. <laughs> Otherwise, people need to know that it's Google in their house so that when you bring home the Google TV and you bring home the Google phone and you bring home... The Google speaker, you know that all these things work together. That's yeah, just I, my—I mean, that's again my conjecture.
1: <laughs> yeah, my frustration with with Nest is that it's—it seems like they've spent all their time bouncing around between management and haven't really improved their core products all mm-hmm. that much. I I've agree. Got, yep, I've got several of the cameras. I've got the security—the security pad or whatever—and and, and the thermostat. Thermostat was the first thing I purchased from them, and they don't work very well together. Like they're, don't, they're aware of each other to a certain point. The app is basically the same as it's always been, at least on iOS. Uh, the, the Android app is actually a lot nicer. It it just feels like for people who have invested in it, uh, I feel stuck with it a little bit. And I look at Ring and other companies doing like actually innovative things with their products. And I'm hopeful that after all of this drama that's been going on for years – The nest can finally settle down and work on its core features and core products, but at this point, they've they've not proven that they can. And the work with nest thing is like a blow against that in my mind. Like I understand the privacy angle, and actually today they said, "Oh, uh, we're going to give you a little more time. We're not, you know, we're just not going to accept any new things, but the old things will keep working after the deadline we gave." So clearly, they're feeling the pressure from people that you can't just pull the plug on a bunch of stuff. But I'm just not sold that Nest's platform is something that has a bright future. And I wish it did because I like the hardware. But boy, it's frustrating to to be in this ecosystem right now. Well, I feel like the Google
0: platform and the Google Assistant platform, that's going to have a pretty solid future because it's got all the power of Google behind it. But the problem is existing Nest stuff may just, you know, is it going to work? Is it going to partially work? Is it not really going to work and get left behind? That is the, you know, that that's my concern is that they're going to shut down the old stuff and the new stuff's never going to work quite right. And then that's going to be the, the end of it. And then I'm sure, you know, next year's stuff that's got the words Google Nest on it will be more integrated, but that leaves a whole bunch of stuff from the Google side and the Nest side sort of like partially integrated which or, is not or, great
1: you know something like like ring for instance you can do everything you need to do through their mobile app and it seems like google's pushing us into a world where the assistant is the interface for so much of this and then that's fine if you have a device with the assistant sort of natively there but if you don't you feel like you're a half step out of the ecosystem even though you've been a part of it for a really long time yeah
2: So I actually, um, I I don't know if you guys knew, but I actually covered DIY security systems for Tom's Guide. (laughs) Um, So I learned a lot about these, the different, like the disparities between them. And Ring actually has been doing a lot more user friendly, like automation for folks if they want to like have an alarm go off when something happens. And... Nest doesn't really have that. And while you were uh, mentioning that, Stephen, the ring versus the Nest, I remembered that the cameras don't uh, make the alarm go off. I, don't mm-hmm. know, maybe I shouldn't be saying all this out loud, but it's it's in my review anyway, if you go read it. um, And that's not going to be possible at all. Like there's just that's not going to be possible at all going yeah. forward with the Google Assistant as the back end. And so and you're also uh, reminding me because I am always in this world and. Sometimes I do stay in this bubble that you don't have the assistant natively on an iPhone. Mm-mm. And that's got to be a real pain to like have to navigate between what is effectively its own platform on top of another platform. Yeah.
0: yeah and I'm using yeah. I'm using home bridge to bridge to my Nest thermostat, at least. And that's one of those open questions, which is, well, will they be able to bridge to the new API or not? to to do uh, that. And I have a guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? <laughs> You're not going to like it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah the, it all that sort of stuff is, is just a little frustrating. And I'm just sort of out of patience with Nest as a customer.
2: <laughs> That's fair.
1: And um, so we'll see where they go. Uh, I, I do think it is interesting that they are using the brand for their other products. I, I think had you asked me before I.O. if I thought, Google Home or Nest, just, just in brand name, just what is the better brand? I don't think I would have said Nest. Uh, It's interesting that that's the direction Mm -hmm. they're going, uh, just from a marketing perspective to me.
0: Yeah. I'm surprised too. Yeah,
2: (laughs) I am too. (laughs) Um,
0: well, before we let you go, um, what, I I have a question for you, which is what about, uh, smartwatches and Wear OS, um,
1: where was that? Oh, uh, you mean where was that? Where OS was that? Where,
2: where, where? OS was where, that where, where was Where
1: OS? Yeah. Where was Where
2: yeah. OS? That's um, what I'm saying. I, some people were wearing them. Um, <laughs> okay. Some, some of some people were wearing some of the new watches. But yeah, I was wearing a Samsung watch all week because it gets much better battery life than some of the Wear OS watches. Yeah, I don't I don't know where they were. That was really I mean, there was even that question, I, I don't know if you guys saw that, um, There was, it was on Twitter, but from the fireside chat with the Android devs, uh, there was a, kind of a cheeky comment made about how uh, there were no Wear OS uh, devs in attendance, <laughs> that particular huh. chat, just to kind of like hone in where it was at the show, which is that there was very little representation. I, I realize this doesn't answer your question, huh. but I... I no, that, That's what I mean You're restating
0: the question, <laughs> I think
2: Yeah, it, it's uh, Yeah, like where, 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 is, where was it? Well, nobody was there <laughs> It's kind of There are no demos I mean, there was a tiny little demo area But that was just to show the new widgets uh, Wear OS is very much in the hands of uh, the fashion brands hmm. I'm guessing that Google gave it to hmm. Interesting uh, Yeah, I don't know Right. Sorry, I don't have a better answer. No,
0: nope. it's 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 a, it's an open question. I guess we'll leave. <laughs> it. Yeah,
2: that's that's what I meant by that. Uh, like, I, mm.
0: I guess we'll leave it there. Where was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. we don't know where.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Flo, thank you so much for being on and talking to us about last week's Google I/O. I'm glad we we caught you this week in order to talk about it. So, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you, guys, and uh, I'm you know, I'm still processing some things. Yeah. So. <laughs> where
0: where uh, where can people find the stuff that you do?
2: Um, all over the web, uh, primarily FlorenceIon.com. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram and on Twitter at OhThatFlow.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Before we go, uh, time for the fuzzy puppy update. We'll make you feel happier after being sad. Are you sad that Wear OS is not a, was not a Google I.O.? Maybe maybe that's it. I'll cheer you up with this fuzzy puppy update. An escaped puppy that went missing has been found after surviving in the wild for more than a year. This is a pointer cross named Rio. He was 10 months old when he slipped away from uh, his owner on a, uh, on out of his leash basically went on a walk near Cambridge in England in January of last year. He was sighted a little bit initially but then not spotted again until March of this year. He was wow. caught this week. He is thought to have, quote, lived off rabbits at at a former landfill site, yes.
1: So, it's not a fuzzy
0: rabbit story. Not a good story for rabbits. If you like rabbits, this is bad because this dog apparently was eating rabbits, but... Uh, but, but Rio survived, uh, people definitely saw him running around occasionally with a rabbit in his mouth. So that that's how he survived. But, uh, a dog lover spotted him, uh, began to feed him little sausages and things. And then they finally uh, set up a trap with food and they got him. And, uh, the sad part of this story is that his former owner adopted another dog, in the meantime and that dog is bad with other dogs so uh, rio oh, no. will, rio will get a new home but rio has been checked out he's doing okay uh and they gave him a bath which is probably a really good idea and it's
1: uh like the uh peter pan story you know you come back and your your family has a new kid yeah. and so you got to love you anymore you got
0: to move on you got to go to uh
1: i'm not sure this is a wholly fuzzy puppy story no, i'm feeling mixed emotions i, I think
0: it's good because he was lost and now he's found and he doesn't have to go uh, eat rabbits anymore
1: that part is true that's good
0: so i think that's i think that's good it is a little a little bit of a bittersweet twist but he's gonna get a new home and it's gonna be great and and they were probably worried that he was um that he was uh, he was a goner right and instead he was just uh out with the rabbits for a year plus so welcome back home to rio And that brings us to the end of this edition of Download, Uh, but we will be back next week for more. This time for sure. Really, really, we will be back next week. Uh, But until then, Stephen Hackett, thank you so much for uh, joining me to talk about this week's headlines. You bet. And thanks again to Flo Ion, and thanks to everybody out there for listening. Until next week, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody.